One of my great prayers is that the Compass Church will always be healthy, spiritually robust, in fact, growing in health. In this series called Revolutionary Love, we've learned that one of the signs of health is love. And friends, I'm also here to tell you that one of the signs of church health is generosity. When a church is alive, when a church is growing, there will be evidence in people giving generously in obedience to God. You know, I stand in a room here at our South Naperville campus. This beautiful facility is proof of the generosity and the health of God's cause at the Compass Church. And you know, the next few weeks, Lord willing, will be proof of the spiritual vitality and health of our church. I say the next few weeks because we are in the final stretch of this campaign called Rise Up. It was two years ago that we began this journey of generosity, asking everybody in this church to obey the prompting of God, giving towards a goal of $10 million to build this building, to give generously to church planting efforts in downtown Chicago, Detroit, over in India, the country of Bhutan, and other, another unnamed Central Asian country where evangelism is illegal. And friends, we are giving to those causes with great enthusiasm. May rise up and well. Let me just give you an update. We are presently at $9.3 million with the goal of hitting $10 million. And you say, well, what's, what's the plan? Here, here's the hope. The end of the calendar year has always been a season of generosity for our church. You know, we're kind of coming to the end, a little bit of a, a yearly finish line. And folks ask themselves the question, Lord, is there a special gift I can give above and beyond my regular giving? towards your work. Well, a lot of times we give it towards missions and sure enough, part of Rise Up is towards missions. And so our focus this December is on finishing Rise Up well. As everybody at the Compass Church, at all of our campuses comes before God and says, Lord, what part can I play in helping us reach that goal? Our confidence, our prayer, is that our devotion to God, our, our health as a church, will be evidenced by hitting that goal.
It's the last week in our series called Revolutionary Love. And I want to start by telling you about a guy named Julian. Julian was one of the ancient Roman empires who despised Christianity and fought valiantly against its advance. Now, a lot of his forefathers, you may know, the Roman emperors loved to oppose Christianity. Many of them had persecuted Christians. They had burned them at the stake and fed them to lions and beheaded them. They felt that if we persecute them enough, it'll stop the advance. But it didn't work. You know, they say that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And sure enough, the, the Christians were just inspired to live all the more boldly for Jesus because of that persecution. So Julian, in his opposition, decided a new strategy was needed. He wasn't going to persecute them directly, but rather offer an alternative that would draw them away. Julian had a deep love for the Hellenistic faith, the the pagan Roman ancient religion with the pantheon of gods. And so he said, I am going to give everything I've got to Uh, restoring pagan temples, building new pagan temples, and working with pagan priests to get them to fine-tune the old religion so that it draws all the Christians away. Let me read to you a quote. He wrote to one of the pagan priests, a friend of his by the name of Arsacius, and this is just a quote in a rather long letter where he's coaching Arsacius on how to strategically advance paganism. He says, Nothing has contributed to the progress of the superstition of these Christians as much as their charity to strangers. They provide not only for their own poor, but for ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. Isn't that a fascinating quote? He essentially goes on to say, we've got to do this thing the Christians are doing because it's working brilliantly. And that thing is caring for oppressed people. That thing is reaching out to orphans and to the poor and to the widows and providing them with shelter and food and tangible expressions of love. He's saying, you know, it's been brilliant for them. Their advance has been inspired by this beautiful characteristic of their movement. You know, it's a critical quote, but it points to the fact that, yes, Christians in the earliest days were known by their love, known specifically by their love for uh, the overlooked and neglected people of society. Friends, that is precisely what Jesus told them to do. So beautiful. We're going to look in this final week of the series at a glorious, beautiful, challenging passage where Jesus calls believers, us, to love just like those early Christians were demonstrating. Shall we? Let's look now at Matthew chapter 25. I'm going to start reading in verse 31. Jesus said, When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, He will sit on his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates sheep from goats. He will put the sheep on his right 
and the goats on his left. Let me just pause there for a moment. In the ancient days of Palestinian uh, farming, they would combine their sheeps and their goats. They would be together in one big flock as they fed them. But at the end, when it was time to uh, get the wool from the sheep, they would need to separate them. And they're of similar size and can be kind of similar looking, but a good shepherd would be able to say, all right, goat over there, sheep over there, goat over there, sheep over there. This was an imagery that the ancients would have been familiar with. And Jesus said something like that's going to happen in the end when we are all in heaven on judgment day. Verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, that's the sheep, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison. And you came to visit me. He goes through quickly six examples of people who are overlooked in the margins of society. And he says, what you did for them, you did for me. I want to just go through these six real quickly. And I've got some props that will help us remember them. The first is hungry. He said, you you gave me food. Good food there. Health food, right? And then the next is, he says, I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. And then he says, I was homeless, and you invited me in. I've I've, uh, been the guest of some people, and their hospitality is amazing. They provide me with a little uh, toiletry kit saying, oh, please make yourself at home. Here's the guest room. Go for it. The next was, he says, you were naked or in need of clothes, and you clothed me. Got a red t-shirt wound up here. And the next one says, you were sick and you looked after me. Box of Kleenex, uh, puffs actually. And then they were imprisoned and you visited me. You know, uh, some prisons uh, actually have a system where they have a visitation booth, glass panel between the visitor and the inmate. And they actually look at each other through the glass but have to speak over the telephone receiver. And so I'm going to just set these props up here to remind us of these six. And what's so fascinating is that Jesus says, you are righteous, you are sheep, because of your love expressed to this group of people. I I won't read it, but I'll just tell you, these sheep respond by saying, when? What do you mean we did these things for you? Well, when did we give you food or water or take you in when you were homeless or clothe you when you were in need of clothes or care for you when you were sick? Or, or when did we visit you in prison? They're confused. And Jesus provides this profound verse of clarity. Verse 40. Then the king, King Jesus, will reply, Truly I tell you, Whatever you did for one of the least of these, my brothers and sisters, you did for me. Isn't that amazing? What you did for them, you really did for me, Jesus said. Wow. 
Verse 41, then he will say to those on his left, this is the other group, the goats, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Wow. One of the more terrifying verses in all of scripture. Friends, I want to pause on it because it gives us a very insightful view of hell. In this final judgment scene, God is separating his people for heaven and those who have rejected him for hell. And this description wrapped up in this verse really helps. Let me, let me highlight a few things. Depart from me. The essence of hell is the absence of God. Some people say, what makes hell so bad? You know, it sounds like a fun party. It's not, and it's awful because God is not there. His love, his goodness, his grace is devoid in that realm. And friends, everybody on earth, you know, enjoys God lets the rain fall on the wicked as well as the righteous. So we're all benefiting from God's goodness. The thought of a world without him is terrifying. But that's the essence of it. Depart from me. Next, he says, uh, depart from me, you who are cursed. You know, we Christians have been relieved of the great curse, the punishment of the rebellion of sin. Well, those who have not found forgiveness in Christ are still under that curse. He says, uh, depart from me into eternal fire. Let's talk about that. A lot of times when we think of hell, the imagery we have is fire, this place, you know, where you're just burning. And a lot of theologians discuss, is that literal fire or is that figurative? And the answer is we don't know, you know. We'll find out later as the Lord, you know, clarifies. But I will tell you this. Jesus used fire figuratively because when he taught about hell, the word he used for hell was Gehenna. Gehenna was the name of a garbage dump on the south side of Jerusalem that was constantly on fire. You know, the methane and decomposing garbage was lit and there would be perpetual flames in this place that they called Gehenna or hell. So when Christ talked about the eternal destination of those without God, he used that eternally burning garbage dump as a picture of it. And then it ends by saying this, eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. I find that interesting. God prepared this place away from him that's terrible, it's like fire. He prepared it for the devil and his angels. He never wanted humanity to go there. But when people teamed up with the rebellion by ignoring God's authority and turning their back on his kingship, Essentially, they signed up with the rebellion. And in doing so, if they remain in rebellion, they share the destiny of the rebellion. But God's wish is that every human being would avoid hell and find eternal life in heaven with God. Christ has extended that opportunity to us all. Jesus explains that the reason they're destined for hell here is that he came to them when he was hungry and they offered him no food and they gave him nothing to drink and they didn't take him in when he was homeless and they didn't provide clothes or care for him when he was sick or visit him in prison. And understandably, the goats say, what, when, when, Lord? When did you appear hungry to us and we didn't feed you? When were you thirsty or homeless or unclothed or sick or in prison? When? And Jesus clarifies, 
by verse 45, he says, whatever you did not do to the least of these, you did not do to me. Christ says, uh, your decision to turn your back on these people in need, he said, I took it personally. You did not do it to me. And then Jesus says, they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. Now here's the problem. This judgment scene is inspiring, but deeply concerning for this reason. It seems that the path to getting to heaven is being loving to the overlooked, marginalized of society. And the the way we get to hell is by failing to love this group. Is that what it is? Is, Is heaven a reward for those who deserve it by loving others? And is hell a punishment for those who fail to love others? The rest of Scripture points to the cross of Christ, trusting in what Jesus did as the means by which you get to heaven. In fact, right here, the next very next verses, we just read the end of uh, chapter 25, but look at the first verses of 26. When Jesus had finished saying all these things, he said to his disciples, as you know, the Passover is two days away, and I am about to be arrested and crucified. So it goes right into the crucifixion of Jesus, which we have been told is the only hope we have of salvation. So which is it? Is it trusting in the crucifixion of Christ, his death on our behalf that gets us right with God? Or is it being loving to the hurting world? Here's the solution. The Bible, in its totality, makes it very clear that salvation is offered in a moment to those who will repent of sin and trust Christ as their forgiver and their leader. But, though this is not how you get saved, this is how we find out that you are saved. The reason that the sheep are this way is that they have fruit or evidence that they've been transformed by the grace of God. This is actually going back to a principle we learned in week one of this series. You may recall that Jesus said in John 13, verse 35, your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Love is the proof that someone has been radically forgiven and reconciled to God. You are forgiven by grace in an instant. But in that moment of forgiveness, you've got a new Lord. You've said, Lord, I want to follow you. You've got a new nature. The Bible says that our heart of stone is replaced with a heart of flesh. You've got a new Holy Spirit power living in you. And when someone's genuinely saved with these new dynamics, they will treat people differently. If there's no change, there's probably no true salvation. As I know, some are saying, oh, man, I'm far from perfect. Are you telling me that I'm not saved? No, 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 no. Everybody who trusts in Christ as their forgiver and leader, you're saved. But everybody who truly trusts in Christ will show some change. Not perfect. We, we change slowly. Sanctification is a gradual journey that happens uh, over life. But it does happen. And we see some change in us. It it was John Newton who was a slave trader. Can you imagine that? He sold and sailed people across the ocean and trafficked over 20,000 human beings. I mean, despicable. And yet he became a Christian. 
And when he did, he wrote the famous song, the most famous song, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. And John Newton was a wretch before he was saved. And even after he was saved, he didn't change right away. He was aware of the fact that he still was junked up inside. But he wrote this as a Christian. He says, I am not what I ought to be. I am not what I want to be. I'm not yet what I will be. But by the grace of God, I am not what I used to be. He's acknowledging I'm changing. It's far from fully perfected, but I'm changing. And all Christians are changing, finding a compassion and a love for the broken world that is just undeniable. Let's do this. Let's go back to verse 40. I'd like to just end by camping out on this verse for a bit. This is when Jesus, the king, said, The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these my brothers, you did for me. What does that mean? What you did for them, you did for me. Here's the essence of it. The love of Christ for hurting people, marginalized people in this world, is so intense that when we love them, his identification with them is so remarkable that he feels it like we're loving him. We give someone food who needs it. And Jesus is so emotionally caught up with this hungry person that Christ says, I feel the love coming to me. I, I, I saw this just this week. I received an email from a guy in Iowa who gave our Rise Up campaign $30,000. I'm like, what is going on here? He's never been to our church. And then I started reading this email trying to understand why this guy is so good to a church in another state that he's never been to. You know what it is? I found out that he has three kids. All three of them went to Wheaton College, and all three of them attended our Wheaton campus during their college years. And so this generous man is saying, when you guys loved on my kids, when you helped them thrive spiritually during their college years, you might as well have been loving me. Because you love somebody who I care about, I feel it directly to me. And that's what Christ is saying. These are my kids. I love them so dearly. If you love them, you're loving me, Jesus says. Now, that has application in two ways. Number one, to all of us who feel mar marginalized, who feel like we've got the raw deal, that we're really hurting and struggling and overlooked, neglected by society, good news, this teaching of Christ shows us that the love he has for you is so intense, his heart so broken when you're mistreated, and his heart so delighted when someone's good to you, his intense affection for those who have really had it rough is demonstrated in what he teaches here. Be encouraged. The love of Christ for you is fiery. There's an application also to all of us, and that is you want to love your Lord? You want to show love to the one who died for you? Look for the people that are over, ne overlooked, neglected, marginalized in society. Go out of your way to love them because in doing so you're loving him. 
You know, I'm teaching presently here at South Naperville. If you've been with us for a while online, you know that I taught in this little cafe for, oh, better part of it, actually over a year. So interesting, when we got done teaching in that cafe, there would be a group of uh, adults with uh, mental disabilities, and there was a uh, care, daycare group that took over. Those, those adults would come into that room. They'd always want a high five as they came by, a special group of people. And I remember thinking, as they come in with these people caring for these adults, what's more important? What I just did, my great preaching ministry, or this love ministry for the least of these? Pretty much tells you what's really on the heart of God. Occasionally, one of these adults would want to talk with me and just chat a bit. And I remember thinking sometimes, Jeff, the one minute you took to love on that young man or young lady was more precious to me than all your prep in preaching that sermon. It's just where the heart of God is. Now I'm going to brag a little bit. Lord, forgive me for this. But my eldest daughter, Jora, just graduated from college back in the spring, and she's now got a job working at World Relief. World Relief is a Christian organization that helps refugees. She works all day with people who were horribly wronged in countries and are fleeing to the United States to find comfort. And Jorah's job is to help them find a place to live and help them find employment. And I just feel so proud because I know the Lord is smiling on her career path. Now, are we all supposed to work for world relief? No. But every one of us is to look for those that everyone else is overlooking and go out of our way to express kindness and love and focus on them in a way that lifts their heart and makes the Lord smile. It's revolutionary love. Jesus says, my group, my cause, my family shall be known by love. Friends, as we close in prayer, I just want to, you know, we're talking about this judgment day scene, so I want to give an opportunity for you to trust Christ as Savior. Again, you say, well, I better start loving people to earn my way. You misunderstood the passage. You better trust Jesus to forgive your sin and take your life, and then he as Lord will lead you into a life of love, proving the authenticity of what takes place in the moment of your salvation. So let's make this closing prayer a moment when you can be saved. Lord, we have messed up. We have been unloving people. We have neglected your kingship and your ways. And so now we trust, we place our confidence in your grace expressed through the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus paid our penalty, and so Christ, would you please be our forgiver? We ask right now, wash away our sin, reconcile us to God both now and for all eternity, and lead our lives into this great movement of love you got going on. We are yours. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.